I mentioned earlier, it's going to look a little different. It's actually going to be a, a mercifully short message, uh, not your typical 30 or 40 minute long message, but rather probably 15, 20 minutes in total. And it's gonna look different uh, because again, the very fact that we are meeting here on a Good Friday, on a day that is um, recognized by believers all around the world, this in and of itself is different, of course, than our usual Sunday morning celebration of Christ's resurrection that we celebrate every week on the Lord's Day. Uh, this evening, we are actually celebrating, if you think about it this way, with a different perspective, along with literally millions upon millions of believers all around the world. And over the last 2,000 years, believers throughout the known world have celebrated on this night of Good Friday for the last 2,000 years, recognizing the beautiful and bountiful redemption that Christ purchased for us upon that tree 2,000 years ago now. I think this is something that is so important for us to recognize because, again, this night is different, and yet we are still called to worship God knowing especially tonight of all nights, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who is slain for us, who is slain for you, for me. And so I can't think of a greater joy that it would be than for all of us, as we are already, of course, gathered here, than to recognize Good Friday as being a special occasion, a night, again, in which we are celebrating and joining with believers all across this world, even this hour, in honor of global worship to our shepherd king together. Now tonight we'll be reading from the historical account of the crucifixion itself of Jesus from John chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. So I'd like to encourage you to uh, turn with me in your copy of God's word to John 19, verses 16 through 30. And with this being such a vivid passage, I'd like to encourage us as we read the word of God from the Gospel of John, to visualize this scene as it develops, to visualize this so in your mind's eye, and to stop for even this moment, for the next 15 minutes or so, to just simply stop and gaze as we read from the Gospel of John of the glories of Christ upon the cross. The glories, but also the agonies that he suffered for us, that are presented to us here. So, without further ado, I'd love to read for us from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, again, verse 16, starting there at the very tail end of verse 16. It's a very sobering passage, but it's one that, again, this night is so appropriate for us to be mindful of. And the word of God, <clears throat> which is forever faithful and true, and given to us in love, says the following. <clears throat> so they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, 
and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But that tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Friends, this he did for you and for me. Thanks be to God. This is the reading of God's word. Uh, Let's come before him in prayer before we dive into tonight's message. Lord Jesus, we recognize that this passage from John 19 is extremely sobering. It's one that if we were to simply tend to it without being prepared to read of this brutal, scandalous night which you endured, we would be just in awe. And even if we tried to prepare ourselves, we would still be in awe for who can fathom the riches of your mercy and grace on display in the cross. So Lord, as we seek to unpack this passage, this account of the crucifixion, an historical event which is packed with meaning for our daily lives to this day, Would you use this to strengthen our faith in you? For you are not a God who remained dead, but you are a God who rose again from the grave, conquering Satan, sin, and death, both your enemies, O Christ, and ours upon the cross. And soon, we know from the gospel, soon the God of peace will crush Satan under our own feet, as Romans 16 tells us. And so, Lord, we ask that as we open your word, would you, by your spirit, preach to our own hearts this this evening. Use this time to encourage us, but to also remind us of the somber news that you died for our sins. And so prepare our hearts to receive this message this evening. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, churches, I've been preparing this short message for tonight. 
I personally have been wholly, at least I like to think so, aware of being wholly inadequate, of fully describing all that was going on here in John 19, the night in which our Lord himself was crucified on our behalf. And as I was talking with a new pastor friend of mine just a couple of short days ago, uh, someone from out of town that I just met, uh, as he and I were both talking about preaching the gospel on Sunday for Easter Sunday, we both ourselves felt that same sense of inadequacy. Who are we to declare the glories of Christ in the gospel of grace? And yet we also were refreshed to know that even though we are ourselves inadequate, we as finite men can never fully proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And that itself is a liberating thing for Christ himself must magnify himself by his spirit as the word is proclaimed. This mystery of the gospel that Christ would love us and give himself for us. That Christ would die for us, that he would redeem us, that he would rise again from the dead for us, that he would treasure us for all eternity. And so I want to focus our time this evening in the word of God tonight upon just those final three verses, as opposed to picking through the entire passage that we just read, I want to focus upon the final few sentences there in verses 28 through 30. Because here we are going to see Christ in his full, infinite wisdom and power and glory not only acknowledge his suffering for our sake, but fully and entirely bring the entire act in the drama of redemption to a close right there upon the cross. In those three words, it is finished. He would bring for one time all of those who had believed upon Christ in advance in the Old Testament, along with all of us to this day, even the day before his final return at the judgment, all of us, the whole of the bride of Christ, he would purchase us and redeem us upon that beautiful and yet scandalous night, the night on which our Lord died. And yet the glory of this moment of Christ upon the cross is that, and I want you to catch this, he knew full well all that he was doing. Christ was fully aware and knowledgeable that he was saving you, beloved. He was drinking down to the dregs, the full cup of God's wrath that we see here. Wrath against sin that was undue him. So here again, the words of John 19, verse 28. It says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill all scripture, I thirst. Now curiously, this verse is packed to the brim with all kinds of truths concerning God. In the original language, the word order itself in Greek here in the Gospel of John is so important. And John, the Gospel writer, recognized how important it was that Christ knew what he was doing, that he even put that participle knowing at the beginning of the sentence. Before most everything else that followed, he said, knowing Jesus did all these things. Knowing Jesus is literally how he phrased it. 
knowing, meaning that he was with full comprehension of all that was to follow and all that his work of redemption upon the cross was securing in that moment when he finally closed up the chapter and said, it is finished. And even before that, when he said, knowing that all of scripture was fulfilled, I thirst, I thirst. But Jesus didn't simply know that he had fulfilled all scripture. He actually, and this is good news, he actually in himself fulfilled all righteousness right there in that moment. See, in his coming to earth, God of very God took upon himself not only human flesh and all the troubles of the human condition, but he himself also undertook all of the covenantal obligations of the law in his own flesh. See, where Adam, our first father, had failed to maintain a righteous standing before God Almighty, Christ, the second and better Adam, came to fulfill where the first Adam had lacked. He himself, Christ, chose to take upon himself the entirety of the law of God in order to actively, conscientiously obey the Father and so attribute his perfect obedience that followed this to all of those who would believe upon him in faith. See, in his life, he, the true Son of God, made himself to be, and proved himself to be, really, the true and better Adam. He himself, as the true Israel, came in the fullness of time, all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, as Acts 2 tells us. But the work of Jesus upon the cross was so much more than even a fulfillment of the righteous demands of the law, than just simply obeying the law and calling that a day. Rather, the redemption of Christ actually accomplished and finished in himself was only possible by him and him alone. No mere human could ever attain to perfection before God. No mere human could ever satisfy the righteous demands of the law and actively obey it. Christ alone as fully God and now fully man in his incarnation alone could satisfy the demands of the law but also make satisfaction on behalf of his people. For the law of God itself reveals to us, to us, our own inadequacy, our inability even. Rather, Christ's work of redemption was substitutionary. It was not just done on behalf of us, you know, for our good, but it was actually done for us, for us in our place. Substitution. Thinking of this term substitution, I'm reminded of Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11. This was written several hundred years in advance, and Isaiah prophesied of Christ the following words. He said this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish, speaking again of the crucifixion to come, out of the anguish of his soul, he, Christ, shall see and be satisfied. 
And catch this, because John picks up on it in John 19. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Friends, Jesus, our Savior, knew full well what he was doing upon the cross. May we never not think in accordance with that, that he had you in mind, his son and daughter, sons and daughters of the living God. He had you in mind. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so we can take comfort in this fact. For our king, who humbled himself to the point of death, stripped, as we read about in John 19, of all of his known glory, even his tunic being taken from him and casted, uh, with lots being cast for it, him being stripped of all of his known glory, beaten, mocked, and ridiculed in that time, he did all of this for you out of love. And having just one day prior shared his last meal with his disciples, this meal that we know as the Lord's Supper or communion, having just tasted of the bread and the wine, wine that was meant to signify merriment and enjoyment and bounty and blessing and all kinds of just covenantal nuances that attend the use of wine in Scripture Now Christ was dried of all these things. The taste of the bread and wine was faint to his own lips. And so here, in desperation, our Lord said, I thirst. I thirst. I can't help but see the connection between the two. The wine that he had taken the night before and the wine which his mouth was literally craving in that moment just a drop of something to satisfy him, his thirst. Well, in John 19, verse 29, it says that there was a jar of sour wine off to the side, nearby. But again, there is this sharp contrast going on here, this contrast between the wine that he had taken with his disciples, a cup of gladness that I often refer to it as, and a cup that was meant to be for those who were undignified. Quite literally, John uses a word for wine that is very much different from the wine that was used in the Last Supper. See, the wine that was used during the Lord's Supper is the typical word for wine. It's the word in Greek, winos, which sounds like wine even in English. And yet here, the wine, the jar of sour wine that it refers to is in Greek, oxos, oxos, something very different. And this wine was actually the excess wine, the wine that was left over and left out, spoiled, used only for cleaning or even mopping, in many cases, dirty surfaces. And so in mockery of Jesus, our Lord, the soldiers nearby took that sour wine that was used for cleaning dirty things and surfaces, and they took a hyssop branch to mock him further, a hyssop branch which has meaning, as you might know from Psalm 51, as something that purges or that is used for cleaning. And they stuck that hyssop branch into a sponge and soaked up as much of that sour wine as they could. And they held it up to our Savior's lips and said to drink this. What a mockery. What a mockery. 
In every respect, our Lord Jesus was humiliated. But he did all of this for us, dear friends. He did this for you. Upon receiving this sour wine, this vinegar, ammonia-tasting substance, he said, it is finished. And our Lord bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But church, there's good news here. See, like that bitter drink that Jesus partook for us, there is also a deep and bitter irony that is going on right here in this text. For although Jesus drank to the dregs the full cup of God's wrath for us, that our sins deserved in that moment, he did it all for the joy that was set before him. See, Hebrews 12, 2 illuminates this passage, this gospel for us. Hebrews 12, 2, which says this, of Christ, our author and perfecter of our faith. It says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising all of its shame, even that sour wine at the end. And after his ascension on high to the right hand of God, he ascended there and took his seat rightfully, the eternal Son of God, where he belonged. See, Christ, for him, the embittered wine or that vinegar that he took in that moment, that vinegar that he took upon the cross, symbolizing the pain and the agony of Calvary that he endured for you and for me, he did it for us. He drank it in spite of its taste for us. So we know in the gospel that he did all of this that we read of here to win us, to buy us, or theologically speaking, to redeem us. When he said, it is finished, he actually redeemed for all time in that moment those whom he came to save. And that's good news, friends. See, you and I who have faith in him for eternal life, were bought by Christ then and there in that moment for all eternity, never to be taken out of his hands, forever secured by him. See, for the joy of having us as his own possession and his desire to obey the will of his Father, this will that they set forth in eternity past that they agreed upon for the Son of God to lay down his life for us, he did it all in love. I'm reminded as Charles Wesley, the hymn writer, wrote of this account, he says of Christ, he emptied himself in that moment of all but love. It's a fascinating statement. And so hear the gospel over here, friends. See, our Lord Jesus took the sour wine, despising it, but not despising us. It was with the deepest of all loves that he took upon himself the wrath of God that our sins deserved, despising the shame, but not despising us. And it was in that moment that he took our souls, buying us, purchasing us for himself, despising the sin and its attendant guilt, but not despising us. So do you know the love of God for you in that? That Christ Jesus, he who knew no sin, loved you so much that he would lay down his life for you.
and that he did this for you, not despising you. So friends, hear Christ's words over you, which is so fitting for Good Friday. It is finished. If you are in Christ, the one who died for you and who rose again to life, as we will celebrate in a very different tone of voice on Sunday morning, celebrating his resurrection from the dead, as we ought, this is a powerful reminder for you, for you who are in Christ. And yet, if you have yet to trust in Christ for salvation from your sin, this is yet an invitation to come to Jesus. For he says, of all that believe in him, it is finished. It's done. Come to me. If you yourself are a believer who is struggling with sin and are feeling weary and broken and burdened down by the weight of your sin in this hour, Christ still says of you and to you, it is finished. Come to me. For in Christ alone is life, and in Christ alone is salvation. Knowing this, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who gave your life for us. What a costly gift. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of being able to worship you in this place. Even on a Friday night, a night that we normally would have other things planned. And yet what a beautiful reminder of the fact that we are a people, by your grace, who are hungering and thirsting after you. That we would make arrangements to come and worship you here. God, I thank you for each and every one of our friends, our brothers and sisters who are here Uh, for those who might be listening at a distance even this evening. And we pray, Father, that you would use this time to refresh us, to remind us of your goodness and grace, to remind us that you are faithful to the end, you who declared over us, your people, upon the cross, it is finished. And so, Jesus, knowing this, we cannot help but praise you the author and perfecter of our faith, our Savior, our Redeemer. So we pray this in your name. Amen.